getting ready to leave the house. Wednesday, May 6, 5.20 a.m. Lunchbox with me, hard hat, uniform shirt. This is Alex. He's heading to his job at the shipyard. About to get in the car. In the past two months, while the world as we knew it ground to a halt and the economy stopped in its tracks, his morning routine hasn't changed too much. He goes for breakfast tacos. Buenos dias. Buenos dias, buenos dias. Dos tacos de harina de papas con huevo. I'm the only one here in the store. Like millions of Americans, Alex works a job that's considered essential, which means he's not isolating at home. He heads out every day into a world where the virus could be lurking. I know some of the guys are worried about it because we work together or we eat together or somehow got close to each other. And Social distancing is hard, especially when you're trying to get work done. If someone he works with catches the virus, all he can do is hope for his own safety. Nothing but hopes and hope this and hope that, that this doesn't happen. And just part. Gotta, gotta have your mask on. Even though you do all this, you're still a little worried in the inside about coming to work, you know? From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petri. Today, essential workers, the jobs that never stopped. We just heard Alex's morning drive at his job at a shipyard. We'll come back to him later in the show. The morning commute carries more significance now than ever before. In fact, it's become a somewhat noble act for many Americans. You see, some states in the country are trying to reopen bit by bit, even as COVID cases continue rising. CDC says more than 1.2 million Americans have tested positive for the virus and nearly 80,000 people have died. Those numbers grow every day. That means a lot of people will continue to work from home. But many people won't be. Many people never could. Those are the people we wanted to find for this episode, the people who never stopped braving the surreal, empty world of pandemic America to make sure it kept turning for the rest of us. We know about the healthcare workers who've been doing the work of warriors for the last few months. We've even heard about the grocery store workers, the bus drivers, the truck drivers, and the janitors, and our hats are off to them. But who else is out there keeping this show going that we haven't heard that much about? We wanted to find out. So, we did. Let's start in a happy place. We have cats, dogs, rabbits, guinea pigs. Uh, occasionally we have a bird, a rat, a ferret, gerbils. 
Sandy Mercado runs Citizens for Animal Protection, an animal shelter in Houston, Texas. We typically have somewhere between 300 and 350 animals on site at any time. We can, we can hold uh, about 350 and we're usually pretty close to capacity. As she watched the pandemic crawl across the planet, she started trying to make plans for when it reached the U.S., for when it reached Houston, because cats, dogs, rabbits, guinea pigs, and the occasional bird, rat, or ferret, well, you can't take care of them via Zoom, and you can't work from home and just sort of hope they'll be okay once this thing is over. We are still caring for the animals, feeding them, walking them, providing medical service for them year-round, and it doesn't matter whether we're open to the public or not. The animals never know if it's a weekday or a weekend or a holiday. Uh, They get the same care year-round every single day. The shelter has been closed to the public since March for the safety of the workers that have to be there every day. But what about the animals in need of forever homes? I mean, part of the point of the shelter is to get these animals adopted. Well, they're still doing all of that. We have done 110 adoptions. We've taken in 133 animals. Uh, Some of them were owner turn-ins, some were strays, and some came in from rescue partners. Sandy says they've come up with a way to help their puppers and their kitties and the rest of the menagerie find their forever families virtually. A family finds a potential pet they love on the website, and they make an appointment. So they come and they... We bring the animal, depending on whether it's a dog or a cat or a rabbit, we bring it into an area and close the animal in and we step away and allow the potential adopter to come in and meet with the animal on their own. Absolutely no contact with any of our staff or volunteers. And across the country, a lot of people seem to be using this stay-at-home period to add a pet to their family. Some people, I think, are just realizing that they have some time at home and now's a good time to introduce a new pet and uh, give them the attention that they need at the beginning of the relationship. I think that's true, but I, a person adding to her own family through pet adoption this week, I'm adopting two kittens, uh, I think there might be a bit more to it than that. With all of this sadness and sickness and death, something else is essential love. The unconditional love and unrestrained enthusiasm a pet adds to your life can be, it it can be kind of a balm during these trying times. And this essential worker loves coming home to it. Sandy sees running this animal shelter during a pandemic as a privilege, whether people think about the work she's been doing or not. And to the other essential workers around the country, she has something to say to them. I want to say thank you. Thank you for continuing to do what you do so that the rest of us can can live our lives um, and be safe and protected. Um, we, we're full. We pretty much do like 10 to 12 cars a day. I mean, but there's two right here. It's two big lifts. And we're just trying to put all the cars in because no one wants their car left out. At a car repair yeah, shop in San Antonio, yeah. they've just closed up for the day. Now they're moving some cars around, cleaning. It was a busy day. Yeah, there was a couple of AC jobs. There was some breaks. There was, we did like seven, seven today. This is Rick. He's the manager. Um, our big lift, biggest lift we have is right here. He says they've stayed open during the lockdown. 
Well, of course, you're a little worried when you see it on the news, but it's just been pretty normal. I mean, inside the shop, the owner of the place, Kevin, says business really never slowed down that much. It seems odd, given that downtown San Antonio is still pretty much a ghost town. Barely anyone is driving anywhere. Mm -mm. But then a lot of times, too, this is time where they can fix their car. You know what I mean? They can fix it now because it's, uh, they got time. Before, I got to go to work. I can't, you know, I can't leave it for a couple of days. Kevin Not has owned this shop for 30 years. He's got the attitude yeah, of someone who's seen a lot of ups and downs and ridden them all out. You know, this has definitely been the biggest thing that's happened. It slowed down a little bit, but we still got, you know, after 30 years, people's cars still break. They don't know anything about Corona, you know? Some businesses, like Kevin's Auto Shop, they've barely changed the way they operate during this pandemic period. And that's because despite the fact that some industries, airlines, for example, are all but decimated, other things have carried right on. Mechanics fix the cars, and then there are workers who repair the roads they drive on. We have a, what's called a pothole patrol. This year, we repaired a total of 10,909 potholes. This is Paul Berry. He's the spokesperson for the Public Works Department of San Antonio. If you're wondering, April just happens to be the perfect time to fill potholes in Texas between rainy seasons, regardless of a global pandemic. Uh, and that kind of came out to an average of, I wrote this down somewhere, oh, an average of 496 potholes a day. And keeping those roads in shape, that is a huge job. In San Antonio, we have over 4,100 miles of city streets that we maintain. To give you an idea of how many miles of streets that is, if you were to drive from San Antonio to Juneau, Alaska, that's 4,100 miles. So that's how many miles of streets that we maintain. This might not be what jumps to your mind when you think of essential workers, right? But if you think about it, most essential workers we know of need to drive to work. So they need functioning roads, just like they need their cars repaired. So now I just wanna, I wanna pause for a minute because we can't really talk about essential workers, the men and women out doing the jobs that many of us take for granted or really hardly even know about without talking about race. So say you had a crowd of people and you ask the ones who do the hard labor that keeps this nation running, the essential work, to step forward, you'd see that many of those people were people of color. Now, before the coronavirus hit, the U.S. workforce was deeply segregated. Black and Latino workers are disproportionately employed in low-wage jobs and service jobs. Now that the pandemic has reshaped how work gets done in the U.S., those racial disparities, they are even more clear. They're stark. One think tank reported that far fewer Black and Latino people can work from home, for example, compared to white Americans. And many of those low-wage service sector jobs are also essential jobs. We're talking about, you know, those grocery store jobs, the farms, you know, the food processing plants. The risks of going to work right now are disproportionately falling onto Black and brown communities. Here in Texas, one industry that employs many migrants and people of color is 
the meatpacking industry. These jobs are high risk in the best of times, right? Tight spaces, sharp blades, fast moving production lines. Now the virus is yet another workplace hazard. At a meat processing plant in West Dallas called Quality Sausage Company, two workers have died from COVID-19. KERA reporter Stella Chavez has been covering their story. Well, we know of two workers. One was named uh, Matias Martinez. He was about to turn 53 this month, and he's originally from Mexico. The other worker is Hugo Dominguez. He was about in his 30s, I believe. In the case of uh, Matias Martinez, the person I've been talking to mostly about him is somewhat related. His his aunt was married to him. And so he's also been very upset about losing him and said that, you know, he had been talking to him like for days before he died and that he sounded normal. He said he felt okay. He started to feel sick on Monday. That Monday, he took the test, and on Wednesday, they told him he was positive. But he was doing fine. I talked to him and asked him how he was doing, and he would say, I'm doing fine, it's just a little cough. So they're very surprised that he he died. I unfortunately have not been inside that plant, so I can't say for sure, but Workers have told me that they are working in close quarters. It's not a, a necessarily a place where they can do a lot of social distancing. So there has been a lawsuit filed, and according to that complaint, the company knew that some workers had coronavirus on April 8th. And some family members, like the man we heard from earlier, think the plant should have closed as soon as the first coronavirus case was confirmed. No, pienso que hubiera sido mejor. At that moment, they could have stopped and sent everyone to get tested to make sure that anyone who had COVID-19 stayed home. They would have stopped operations and have done what they did now. I feel like they're too late. Right. Well, as of Friday night, uh, the company has started sort of a gradual reopening, and they're calling it a phased-in restart of operations. And that's after taking a pause in operations for like 14 days. And so basically what the company has said in the statement is that they're planning uh, just a limited production right now. Um, And this is after they say they've followed, um, they've reviewed all of their operations and have received guidance from CDC and OSHA. Some of the workers I've talked to say that the plant, and and especially the the wife of Hugo Dominguez, uh, say that the company should have done more, that that there, that they should have had uh, protective uh, gear for all of the workers early on. It didn't close until after one of the employees, uh, Matias Martinez, had, had died. And then the next day, Hugo Dominguez died. To be fair, you know, I also talked to one worker who said that um, he, he doesn't necessarily blame the company, that this is bound to happen and that is it's happening in many places that's just the nature of this virus and that when you're around a bunch of people that it's it's going to spread thank you stella for bringing us this story yeah no problem thank you so much for having me on so that worker is right 
the COVID virus passes easily from person to person, often before a person knows they have it, which is one of the main reasons so many of us are being asked to stay home. That's also why gathering a lot of workers in a confined space isn't a great idea, even if their work is considered essential. But there are safer ways to do it. Testing and distancing are key. If you can't have your workers keep their distance from one another, if you can't get them good personal protective equipment, and if you haven't provided tests to figure out who's infected, your workplace isn't safe. And maybe you should close it until it is, no matter how essential your goods or services. It's kind of hot. Yesterday it was hot. I gotta remind myself to drink a lot of water. Safety's always reminding us to drink water, drink water, because it gets hot. So, remember the worker we started our show with? I thought I brought a cup of coffee. That's Alex Chavez. He let us ride along as he started his workday at a shipyard site. I guess I forgot it. TPR's border and immigration reporter, Reynaldo Leanos Jr., has been following Alex's story. Make sure you get rid of it at the house. I don't want to get some. I've been reporting on a story about workers at the Port of Brownsville, one of the busiest ports in the United States. It's home to Keppel Amphils, a shipbuilding company. So shipbuilding seems to fall under the critical infrastructure category in the Department of Homeland Security guidelines on essential work. Yeah, so a lot of the employees that I was able to speak with, you know, didn't really want to go on the record um, because they were nervous, you know, that there would be some sort of retribution for speaking out, you know, that their job would be on the line or that, you know, just something like that would happen. But I did talk to Alex Chavez. He walked me through what his day is basically like, you know, when he arrives to work in the morning. He told me that he and others have to wait in line before clocking into work. So you go and then you see some tables that are about maybe 60 yards away. There's some tables there where they check your temperatures. And, you know, Alex says that once he's inside, it's time to get to work. Me, I have a helper and we get our tools ready. We connect the wires. We connect everything. The, the, the welding needs, the torch, the, everything we need, the extension cords. The whole day, we're, we're working together side by side. Alex says that he and his co-workers are building two ships. He says it's pretty hard to practice social distancing at the shipyard. He says that they're currently working on a container ship that will be shipped to Hawaii. And he says it's hard work. And that the job became even more difficult, you know, about three weeks ago when workers received a company memo that said that someone at their worksite had tested positive for COVID-19. Um, I, I was shocked. I was shocked about it. And um, I was, uh, you know, I was just waiting for that type of news to happen. Another worker says that the company started handing out masks a couple of days before the employees learned, you know, that someone had tested positive at the site. But... More than half the job sites aren't wearing masks, and it's not mandatory. They're not making it mandatory because they know that if they make it mandatory, they're going to stab themselves in the back because they know they don't have enough supplies. That was three weeks ago when I first spoke to him. Now Alex said, as of last week, the company made it mandatory to wear a mask. Reynaldo, in his reporting, learned something troubling about the oversight of these companies. You see, these ship workers, yes, they're considered essential. The meat plant workers we heard about earlier, essential. They are expected to continue showing up for work, putting themselves and because this virus is contagious, their families in harm's way. So 
who's looking out for them? That's OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. But the agency nor Congress have passed any new federal laws that require companies to provide face masks to their employees or enforce social distancing during the pandemic. In fact, a memo from OSHA tells companies who've had an employee file a complaint to take matters into their own hands. It asks companies to conduct their own investigation during this time. OSHA is the, you know, the agency that's charged with creating standards and enforcing them. And unfortunately, you know, they've decided not to do that during the pandemic. I spoke with Katherine Euchre about this. She's the Labor and Employment Group Coordinator with Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid. Instead, they have said that they will prioritize investigations of um, cases that allege failure to provide personal protective equipment for healthcare workers. But in all other cases, they're saying they would just send like an informal letter to the employer and not do an actual investigation. OSHA says it needs to protect its people. There's a pandemic and sending them out into the field isn't ideal. OSHA says it's still fulfilling its mission Ray mentioned a public OSHA memo telling the employer that OSHA will not conduct on-site inspections and that the employer should conduct their own investigations and report the results back to OSHA. Right, but here's the thing. Regardless of what the employer reports, OSHA can't take enforcement action unless OSHA itself does an on-site investigation. So OSHA's straight up asking employers to investigate themselves. To sort of rely on the the goodness of an employer to do what's right by their employees is it's really laughable, especially you know how where we've seen mistreatment of and exploitation of um, workers for for so long. That's Sean Goldhammer. He's a staff attorney with the Workers Defense Project. He says the CDC and OSHA have posted guidance about social distancing, face coverings, and other prevention measures. Um, but those are just recommendations. Those are just guidance that does not uh, cannot be enforced. Goldhammer says individual states could codify those federal recommendations as concrete requirements at the state level and. That would help because right now OSHA isn't doing on-site investigation without a very, very serious complaint of death directly related to COVID-19. More general concerns like lack of PPE or a company forcing sick workers to continue working will likely lead to that memo, which asks companies to investigate themselves. Workers don't have much protection right now and very little recourse. Their jobs are essential, important, supposedly worth the risk to their health, but not important enough to get concrete state or federal protection. And as for Keppel Anthels, the shipmaker, according to company memos workers provided to Texas Public Radio, there are now four confirmed COVID-19 cases at the company, with about a dozen others told to quarantine at home because they had been exposed to one of the employees who tested positive. So there's one final person I wanted to introduce you to. We talk a lot about people on the front line here on the podcast, healthcare workers facing this virus head on every day. But this final worker isn't on the front line 
In fact, you could say she's on the back line. The final stop. Michelle Nowak's job is to pick up the remains of a person who's died at the hospital and either cremate or embalm the body so it can be taken to the funeral home. She runs a mortuary service. So they use a specially designed furnace called a retort. They sweep the cremated remains out of the retort with a brush. We have had in our care almost 40 calls um, that were COVID positive, and we have averaged anywhere from one to four COVID calls, let's say every other day or every third day, depending. When a person dies of COVID, their bodies still carry the virus, which means Michelle and her employees have started taking more precautions than they used to. Since that time, our PPE obviously has changed. We, we would have a full gown, uh, hair covering, shoe covers, gloves, an N95 mask. If we're going into a home, obviously we are being exposed knowingly to more probably COVID cases than I would say your average person at an average job outside of the health field. We would actually don that PPE even to go into the home simply because it's more for the family's protection than ours. Michelle and her staff need a lot more protective gear than they used to, just like everyone else whose job brings them into contact with COVID patients. But in the nationwide scramble for PPE, she's had to get in the back of the line behind the frontline healthcare workers like nurses and doctors. I get that. We may not be first responders in the way that you're not in front of a live patient that can breathe on you, but most certainly dealing with the families and dealing with um, the deceased. I have one cooler that is just dedicated to COVID victims, obviously. And so, so instead, like many businesses, Michelle is scraping together protective gear on her own. It's difficult. It's so difficult. It's been a full-time mission since this all started. All of my vendors know if there's anything that comes across, call me immediately because we're going to buy that PPE. So we've just been piecing it together. We literally went to Walmart and I bought, I think, every clear emergency poncho they had just in case we run out of PPE. I'm going to tell you, if I see a gallon of bleach somewhere, I'm buying four. If I see uh, barbicide, you know, wipes that are for sale on a website somewhere, I'm buying what the limit. And so we're staying ahead of it, but um, there could come a time very quickly when we won't be able to stay ahead of it. Michelle told me that even though she works behind the scenes, she finds it really gratifying to help a family through a loss, especially now when a family might not have been able to say goodbye to a person who was being isolated because they had COVID. She can give them an opportunity to see their loved one's remains one last time. But Michelle says she worries for her employees' health, for their families and for her own health. It is a lot emotionally. I'm in Houston. So here, as with a lot of places, we went through Hurricane Harvey. And I remember them talking about storm fatigue. 
I'm going to tell you, there is something to that with this pandemic. And those of us that are in the essential workforce, there's a sort of emotional fatigue that has come along with that. I know we're not the only ones feeling that. So it turns out the people who keep our world turning aren't necessarily the ones we might have thought were doing it. I mean, you're not seeing any athletes or actors go to work every day. The people who emerged from the throng of us when we called for just the people we needed to work to keep working were the humble, hardworking people who've been essential all along. We just never noticed them. We didn't see them. It seems that some people still don't see them, like the Supreme Court Justice in Wisconsin who suggested the plant workers who were getting COVID in Brown County, Wisconsin, weren't the regular folks of Brown County, Wisconsin. They were the meatpackers. Well, who are the regular folks of Brown County, Wisconsin, if not the meatpackers? When I hear things like this, I have to wonder if people are actually paying attention when they pop in It's a Wonderful Life every December. And hear George Bailey remind the greedy town banker, who is clearly the villain in this story, that the low-wage workers in that town are the ones who do most of the working and paying and living and dying in that community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in, my book, he died. in the time of COVID, I ask, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and maybe not die in some good PPE and at a safe distance? At least I don't think so. What do you think? Do you have questions about this coronavirus or COVID that we can investigate for you? Or you can check in and tell us how you're doing. I say this every week. I mean it. I'd love to hear from you. Just email us at petridish at tpr.org. That's Petri spelled like my name, P-E-T-R-I-E. Special thanks this week to KERA reporter Stella Chavez and TPR's Reynaldo Leonios Jr. for their excellent reporting on this show. This episode was produced by Ben Henry and Dominic Anthony Walsh. Our sound engineer this week was Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Our news director is Dan Katz. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. Talk to you soon.